Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. David Penn here. It's a celebration. It's episode number 50. 50. Wow. We made it 50 episodes. And uh, I'm excited about that, and I hope you are, and welcome back. Tanner, good morning. It's good to see you. Good morning, good Professor morning. Penn. Well, we're, we're happy. Number 50. I'm, I'm ecstatic about it. You never know. Every day is, uh, is an adventure, and life has not promised anybody. So I managed to get 50 of these episodes down, and I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Please spread it out. We started out with um, Bach, Little Prelude, and A minor. And it's a little bit different. We had the musical notes on screen, for those of you who had video, and if you're just audio only, you were spared that. Let me just comment for a second because it uh, brings up something I find interesting. There's two ways to play music, by ear or by note. And uh, I can do both, but it didn't start out that way. I was trained in classical music, and uh, I can read uh, treble and bass clef, which is the two predominant uh, Western uh, ways of uh, writing down music. And uh, I trained that way for many years, probably 15 years before I started getting interested in jazz. And I recognized that those notes, my dependency on the notes, was an, imped an impediment to me being able to play by ear. And that was a very difficult barrier for me to break through. It took me many years to overcome my dependency on the written note. It's an interesting concept. It's another yin-yang concept. The beauty of the written note is it's a way for you to train. Musicians that came before write down a methodology or their music so that we can study it and practice it. And I do have to say that many, if not most, of the classical musicians, the cohort of classical musicians, that's the extent of where they go, and that's a lifetime worth of study right there, just getting the notes right. Big time, big time practice to get that done. But then there's some of us that want to go off-road, so to speak, off-road. You want to get out into the wild, and uh, that's playing by ear. Now, some musicians, for whatever reason, uh, never learn how to use notes. They only play by ear. They never learn to play the written note. Well, that's a deficiency also. There's a balancer that people have to find if they're going to be truly, fully developed as musicians. But my point is this. Our cell phones, our cell phones are a dependency, just like being dependent on the written note is a dependency. We are trained to use these inventions. The written notes obviously were an invention. The cell phone's an invention. We're trained to use these for convenience, to make it easier for us to understand. For example, that piece of Bach, you know, it could have been Bach played it and everybody stood around and the only guys that could have learned it were the guys that had perfect musical memories and perfect pitch. Oh, they're good to go. There aren't that many people with perfect musical memories and perfect musical pitch. 
they exist. I've known those people. They're phenomenal. They're, they're geniuses, right? But they wrote those notes down for everybody else. You know, when you have all of your key contact information in your cell phone so that you don't have to remember your telephone numbers, your short-term memory is not going to be very strong. When you use the map on your phone to get from point A to point B, your spatial and your directional intelligence is going to be diminished by your dependency on the convenience of that map. It's interesting, isn't it? Convenience. Convenience. Convenience is the harbinger of our enslavement. That's, again, a yin and yang thing. We have the rigors of life, the difficulty of self-governance, and we have the convenience that's offered to us by a scientific technocracy that has taken over our government. These two issues are the issues that matter. We're going to talk about that today. And uh, it really it really is the, the root of the globalist-nationalist argument. The globalist seeks the highest level of global governance because there are problems so large that no one country can solve the issue. That's the, the cover story or the pitch. The nationalist has a humility, wants a border, has limited national goals, limited national aims. There's a citizenship that's national and sovereign as opposed to global governance. Ties into all kinds of notions of piracy, drugs, and slavery. But that basic uh, distinction is the farther away the governance gets from the individual citizen, to make that work, the more convenience has to be offered. The trade is give me your freedom and I will give you convenience. We've got to think this through. If we had good leadership, and our leadership could be trusted, and there was a social compact so that the trade-off was about you give me well-being and I'll give you, you know, my, my allegiance. Hey, that'd be great. If your convenience brought me well-being, hey, maybe we'd talk about it. But when your convenience brings me unhealth and servitude, hey, we just can't consent to that. That's what the Professor Penn podcast is about, and that's why I'm asking you to send out the clips and shorts that you see on my social media that you'll see coming through your feed because we're a political podcast. I'm doing this not to get rich, not to be famous. These are issues that are not important to me. I know they're important to others, and I'm not diminishing people's desires to podcast, to make money, or to be famous. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it specifically to serve God, country, and family and to provide a, a visual media and audio media so that we can create a community first here in my local Senate district, which is SD45 in Minnesota, in my congressional district, which is CD3, and then in my state of Minnesota. My ambitions are limited to my local neighborhood. That's who I am. And I hope that moves you. Now, it's not that I'm not paying attention to international issues. 
I think the solution to our international problems are not found in international governance. I think they're found in local governance. So let me just take a minute and talk about Minnesota politics. Because if you're in Oregon, or if you're in Kentucky, or New York, or Florida, it's the same, but a little different. Now here in Minnesota, we have what's called a caucus system. And everything we're going to be doing here in Minnesota is going to be aimed at encouraging you, you, to come to caucuses on February 27th, 2024. The caucus, what's a caucus? Well, it's a neighborhood get-together. I don't know why they call it caucus. I guess I'll look it up. I'm sure there's a good reason. But what it does is it obscures what really is happening. It's your neighborhood the couple, two, 3,000 people that live in what's called your precinct, where you vote, your local precinct, your local neighborhood. It has a number. It actually is demarcated on a map by the governance of the state of Minnesota. Your local neighborhood has an identity. And you and your local neighbors are going to go to a site that will be designated by what's called your Senate district. The state of Minnesota is divided into Senate districts. Each district has one state senator and two state representatives. So in 45, in 45, we have uh, one state senator, Dr. Kelly Morrison, a Democrat, and we have two House members. One is Representative Andrew Meyer from 45A, a Republican, and a Democrat from 45B, Patty Acomb. That's my backyard, 45, and I serve on that Republican Senate District Committee. My job is to invite you and to encourage you to join with us and get involved in the game of politics. So let me just say it's all about caucus 20, February 27th, 2024, when you come to that caucus, you and your neighbors can elect each other and become delegates from your precinct or from your neighborhood. Your neighborhood is now represented in the political process. Several months later, those neighborhood elected precinct officers, delegates, will go to the Senate District Convention where you're going to elect representatives from your Senate district, in my case, Senate District 45. So your precinct elects delegates. Those delegates go to the Senate District 45 convention and elect representatives of the Senate district. And those are very interesting people. They're going to go to the Congressional District Convention, which will happen later in the year, and also the State Convention. And those representatives that aggregate up from the, re from the neighborhood to the Senate District, those Senate District representatives that you will elect, they're going to nominate and endorse our candidates. They're going to have say in how our party is run. They have entered the political process, as do you if you're a precinct delegate. So this is about getting off the bench and getting in the game of politics, which if you'd like a tutorial, precinctstrategy.com. 
That's precinctstrategy.com where you can go for a tutorial, a tutorial on everything you need to get involved in the game of politics. Minnesota politics, we're going to come back to it and come back to it because we've got to get the American citizens involved. They're taking our freedom in exchange for convenience. If they were good people, it would be worth considering. But they're not good people. We know they're not good people. We can feel it. We can see it. We can taste it. We can smell it. We know there's tyranny afoot. So this is the time for the American people to wake up and rise up, the sleeping giant of America, and get involved. And as Benjamin Franklin said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Let's get in here and cure this now, prevent it, prevent it before we really have a much bigger problem. I want to thank Free People Radio for giving me this platform. Very much appreciated. I want to thank our sponsor, TireGet.com. That's T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. 14,000 different kinds of tires in stock, everything you need for your vehicles. you got to buy tires. You go to TireGet. You buy the tires you need at the right price, and you fund this broadcast, this, broadcast, this channel, and the movement. So it's very important that we get our own political economy going, Target appreciates it. Professor Penn Podcast appreciates it. Free People Radio appreciates it. Thank you very much for buying your tires from TireGet. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for my American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. It's the 50th episode. Thank you for being with me on the 50th episode. It means a lot to me. I appreciate it. Please, let's grow the audience. We're actually growing quite nicely. You don't see the numbers. I mean, it's not your job to watch it. Why am I watching it? Because I want to get 10,000 people out to the caucuses in Minnesota that never participated before. You know, we have uh, a globalist group that run both parties. Both parties are run by a globalist group. The Democrat Party is 100% globalist. Now, there might be some nationalists hiding in there, but they're so repulsed by the Republican Party, they stay in the Democrat Party because of the ideals the Democrat Party espouses, which, of course, is you know, countering global climate change and 
addressing the issues of social equity, which means you know the Democrat Party is not supposed to be racist or homophobe or anti-Semitic or xenophobic, which is very important to all of us at this time. And then democracy, which for the Democrat is a woman's right to choose. They're in lockstep on this. The Republican Party is where the fight is. Half the Republican Party, and I mean half, is nationalist. Nationalist. We want a nation. We want borders. We have limited ambitions. We want our own political economy. We want the rights and the well-being of the American citizen to be respected. And the other half of the Republican Party is just as globalist as the Democrat Party. And that's why there's so much fighting in the Republican Party. We do not have unity. We have chaos. We have the chaos that's associated with a throwdown between the godless and the God-fearing. It's just that simple. Why do we have to hide the truth? Well, you know, we're not supposed to talk about I have my friend Eugene. Oh, please don't talk about that. You know, Eugene, let's be honest about what's going on. We have a group of people, even if they say they believe in God, their actions show that they do not believe in the traditional Judeo-Christian heritage of our country. Their actions show it, what they say. And then we got another half that are dedicated to the traditional values of God, country, family. And we're not getting along. There's no unity. The best we can hope for is teamwork. What does that mean? That means we can be on the same team and not like each other, but work together to accomplish goals we hold in common, which is to elect Republicans. Now, I've made this statement, and I'm going to make it again. I have to be politically practical because I'm a leader in the party until they throw me out, which, of course, they're trying to do. And, you know, I'm going to remind them, keep your friends close and your enemies closer because if they succeed in throwing me out, then I can just take a hatchet to these people, a metaphorical hatchet. Right now, what I'm trying to do is just draw out the distinction between globalism and nationalism. The globalists in the Republican Party are not Republican. They're foreigners that have worked their way into the party, and here's how they worked their way in. They're wealthy, very wealthy, and they're here to make sure the uni party prevails. The uni party is globalist. What does the uni party want? Broad, bipartisan consensus on military issues and health care issues because it's a big fat pot of four or five trillion dollars of money and they're all on the payroll in one way, shape, or form or another. So if you're on state assistance, let's say, you're on Medicare or Medicaid or you're taking a um, Social Security or you're in a union or you're getting some kind of aid for people that don't have enough, of course you're going to vote for that. You're getting money from the government. If you're for low taxes and low regulation, you're the same person, just a little different. If you don't have any money and you're living off the government and you vote to get that money, you're a globalist. And if you have money and you're voting for low taxes and low regulation, you're also a globalist. You're not into self-governance. You're asking the government to take care of you. You're asking the government to be your nanny. You want to be a little child. 
You want benefits. You don't want to take care of yourself. Okay, does that sound judgmental? Yes, I'm being judgmental, but it's on a scale. There's a yin and there's a yang. We're overbalanced to dependency. Complete radical independence is also not a place where we want to be. We're looking for just right, and that's what we're arguing about. That's what their argument is about. What's just right? And we all have our idea about what just right is. Well, let's just say just right does not include, for me, the potential of a nuclear holocaust. So we're just going to take a minute to talk about the Ukraine again because it's something I want to stay up with. And since I saw you last, our government, that'd be you and me, because we're government, we're self-governing, right? We're of the people and for the people and by the people. Hey, guess what we did? We authorized two countries, Denmark and the Netherlands, to take their aged stock of XF-16 nuclear-capable fighter planes made here in the United States, our technology, and to transfer them, 42 of these planes, to the Ukraine. Now, these are formidable weapons, F-16s. They're not informidable. And this is definitely an escalation of conflict in the Ukraine. We're giving the Ukrainians a toy that they can take out and, you know, fight with. And why do I say it's a toy? It's an antique. These planes were introduced in 1978. In 1978, when they were introduced, oh, they were unparalleled in comparison to other fighter jets that were used around the world. The Russians, the Chinese, they didn't have this kind of technology. But after every possible software upgrade you can stick into this jet, it's still obsolete. I'm going to give you my theory of the case. It's an, it's an escalation, okay? It is an escalation. But are these... 1978 fighters really going to change the course of the war? Well, if you look closely, even our government says that these uh, fighter jets are not going to change the co course of the war. Let me give you a quote. Here is John Kirby, one of our many spokesmen, a military man. You can see him online or on you know, he does the live press conferences. John Kirby. Most likely, he says, the F-16s will arrive in Ukraine before the end of 2023. However, we do not believe that F-16s alone can alter the situation on the battlefield. Oh, really? What are they doing? If it's not a transformative weapon, why are we up in the ante and giving them to the Ukrainians? And I have a theory as to why. My theory is, like a businessman, every business has what's called obsolete inventory. This is inventory that, for no fault of your own, styles change, pricing changes, things change. You've made an error. When you bought the stuff, hey, it was great. You're going to make money on it. But down the road, you find out it has no value. And you have to get rid of it and write it off, and it hurts your profits. Well, 
think about this. If we didn't have this war in the Ukraine, these 1978 technology fighter planes would be worthless. Worthless. You'd have to write them off. Write them off. They've ended their useful lifespan. They're done. <laughs> but we have a war now. Guess what they get to do? They get to repurpose them and squeeze more juice out of this fruit. They're just going to squeeze the last drops out of these old planes, make some more money off of them, get some more money out of the inventory. They don't have to write them off all the way. They get some additional return on investment. Isn't that great? Well, war is a very risky and high-profit business. The Russians are warning us, don't do this, because these are nuclear-capable planes. But let me give you a scam here. Because of the training required of the Ukrainians to fly these planes, John Kirby's prediction that they would be delivered by the end of 2023 is not going to come true. That was a fairy tale. The real fact is they're going to be delivered with pilots that can fly them in the summer of 2024. Guess what? We got a year to think about what we're doing. We got a year to drag some more profit out of this weapon system. We got a year to talk it through to see what's happening. And these two sides are getting closer and closer to cutting the deal because the Ukrainians are really out of juice. They're wiped out. I and mean, when I say they're wiped out, their young men are wiped out. There's no more young men that want to truck off to be all they can be and die in this conflict. And when you run out of people to pull the trigger, the war generally winds down. And that's where we're at. Now, the Biden administration knows this, and they're seeking $40 billion in emergency funds, a supplemental bill. $40 billion. Hey, $40 billion here, $40 billion there. It ends up being real money. Now, I'm really confused about all these numbers because not that long ago, they were talking about $250 billion had been spent on the Ukraine on the books, plus who knows how much went into the black box of the CIA. And now they're saying it's $127 billion. So there's a little bit of a shell game going on with these numbers. But there is a bill, a supplemental bill, that they're trying to run through Congress right now that, of course, has broad bipartisan support. Because, you know, funding for the military is the sacred cow of our Congress. When I just went to State Central Committee, they had the veterans stand up two times. Two times. We have the heroism of our young men. And, of course, our young men get old, get gray, and get heavy. And then they get to stand up and be remembered as the great war fighters they once were, which is a thrill if you can't touch your toes anymore, as most of the people that I saw at the State Central Committee. I, there was a couple of young guys there that were still capable. But most of the people that stood up, well, they were 462 years old. It was a thrill for them. Like my friend Howie that played basketball for my high school, Highland Park, oh, in about 1974. That was the high point of his life. You know, it's a little tragic, right? So they used the heroism of our young men. And as our young men age, we revere our war fighters because they are risking their lives. And what they do is dramatic and heroic. But they're being used. They're being used. Now, we used to have a draft, okay? And the military didn't like that because they got a lot of people that didn't want to be there. We have an all 
mercenary army. When I say mercenary, Taylor, did you know you can join the army for big pay? Yeah. Why didn't you do it? Uh, just because I personally felt that there wasn't a war worth fighting. Very interesting comment. I like that comment. Yeah. So you weren't willing to sell out to go get involved in wars that you didn't believe in. Yeah, if 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 I were to believe in a war, then I, yeah, it, it crossed my mind as an opportunity, but I just looked at the situation, I'm like, there's nothing that I really, no reason that I want to go out and die right now. Is there a number that they could pay you that would be enough that you would risk death just to take the money? <laughs> if they promised that they would take care of my daughter, like for her entirety of her life, it, yeah, that would be the price point. Don't look too far. I bet it's there. You just probably have to get far enough up the drain pipe to get those benefits. Oh, those benefits are there. You know, half of our military budget, the budget that's on the books, is for pensions. Did you know that? Oh, there's a surprise. We spend a trillion and a half dollars on our military, but about $750 billion goes for pensions. And, you know, if you put in your 20 and you're a colonel, whoa. You might have two PhDs paid for during your military service. And when you retire, you're going to get over $100,000 a year and free health care for the rest of your life. So if you go in at 22 and retire at 42, hey, and live to 100, we got a long, we got 58 years of paying you 100 grand a year. That's $5.8 million plus free health care all along the way at the VA. So if you get done, I mean, you could leave today and go enlist and become a colonel if you want to go that route. And by the time you're 42, hey, you can get about eight, nine million bucks out of the deal. How you like that? Pretty good, huh? Didn't know that, did you? Yeah, that's oh, a that's number. A, yeah, it's <laughs> unbelievable. He's Tanner's got a big smile on his face. His The wheels in his brain are spinning around. But, you know, this is where we're at. They want a supplemental because the sacred cow of our Congress, and of our country as our military people. Well, is this really for the well-being of the citizens? You know, we're using the courage and skill of our young men, and that hides the inequity of the very old money that profits from forever wars. Let me say this again. We have very old money in this country, old. When I say old money, I mean intergenerational wealth that owns these military contractors. And these military contractors have tremendous sway, as President Eisenhower warned us in 1961 in his famous speech about the military-industrial complex. He warned us about erecting a permanent military-industrial establishment that would have the means, the money, and the willpower to influence the political process in the long term. And that's exactly where we've come to. So they've got this $40 billion supplemental bill, which uses that, that love we have of our veterans and that respect we have for anyone that's putting their life on the line in defense of God, country, and family. But is it God, country, and family? Are they really defending God, country, and family, or are they out in a globalist enterprise, protecting and advancing the empire, which is about slavery, drugs, and piracy. Now, there are going to be people that get very mad at me, but we're going to have to drill into the truth because we don't have a global military 
of limited ambitions. As soon as you say a global military, you have unlimited ambition. That would be greed, a sin. We need to rein in our ambitions as the American people. I do not want to live in an empire specifically and only because empire and self-governance are in contradiction to each other. We can't have both at the same time. And that's why our complex problems in our politics are so fraught with conflict today because the American people are waking up and going, whoa, my self-governance, my freedom is being extinguished in exchange for what? Worldwide democracy, which is worldwide empire, addressing a climate crisis, which the globalists say is settled scientists and people all over the world are saying that science is not settled. Well, what's going on there? And then social equity, which is the hijacking of the word equity, equity being the value of my shares in an enterprise. But now equity means we all have the same thing, which is also known as communism. Equity, the word equity is a rebranding of communism, which was rebranded as progressivism, which has been rebranded as liberalism. Now they got it as equity. Doesn't that sound nice? Social equity, it's great. And that's what we're doing here. Well, that's what we're doing. So we've got this supplemental bill, and our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has just called upon the Congress to approve the additional supplemental immediately, immediately. And all I can say is, Congressman Emmer, remember, I said, please, you're lying to me. Please don't. Well, since that bill passed, that debt ceiling bill, that Congressman Emmer, a globalist, Let's get away from Republican and Democrat. It's irrelevant. It's globalism. That globalist representative that we've elected here in Minnesota, because he's so strong in the military, first thing he did at State Central Committee when he took the stage is, if you're a military veteran, stand up. He used those people. He used their heroism. He used their bravery and their sacrifice to justify the transfer of wealth from me and you to a global empire, a military empire, and he was willing to lie and tell us that that bill was the greatest cut in American political history of over $2 trillion, when in fact what's happened is since they passed that bill, that would be the Republican Congress, we have over a trillion dollars of additional debt and they need another $40 billion. Hey, it's only $40 billion. It's only $40 billion. The tallest building in your city, in my city, it's, you know, like the IDS building, skyscraper, skyscraper, goes way high. If you take $100 bills and stack them, a billion dollars will go up to the tallest building that you know, to the top. He only wants $40 billion of those. So take the tallest building in you, in your awareness, stack $100 bills, get to the top, and then take it times 40, and you'll recognize these people have no care, no concern, and no prudence about your money. And what does your money represent? Your energy and your creativity. Money is a representation of my energy and my creativity. The more energy I have and the more creativity I have, the more money I'm likely to accrue unless my government 
takes it all away from me through the tax of inflation and just plain ass taxing, which is what they're doing. And we're fighting it here at Free People because we want to maintain our freedom. I mean, if you take away all my energy and all my creativity, what would that make me? Oh, that would make me a slave. Remember the business model? Hey, here it is. Good morning. Good evening. Hey, if you're watching me in the morning, good morning. Take slavery, drugs, and piracy with your coffee. If you're watching me at night, as you're tucking yourself in, thank God for releasing the bound. Thank God for directing our path. Let us pray to escape together and ask God to liberate us and thank God for liberating us from this terrible business model. Unbelievable. Well, you know, let's go to the drug side for a second. Tanner, can you play this clip on the obesity advertisement? You know me. I am your mother, your sister, your wife, your friend. I am one of 650 million people. Throughout my life, I've lost weight, but have regained it time and time again. I've spent most of my life on countless diets. I eat my fruit, vegetables, and have made healthy choices. I've overcome judgmental stares and comments. But they don't know that each day, I have to ignore my own biology, which controls my hunger. I've had my ups, my downs, my good days, my hard weeks and my bad months. I've missed out on dream jobs and have been picked last in countless games. I've worked out over 200 days a year, year after year. I've even rode halfway across the Atlantic Ocean. Yet my body and metabolism work against me as I struggle to keep the weight off. I've taken responsibility. I've followed guidance and tried everything when it comes to my weight. And I'm still living with obesity. Well, that makes me very sad. This is a... Um, an advertisement that's omnipresent now. If you're carrying extra weight, you know about it. If you're not carrying extra weight, you probably know nothing about it. Uh, why do I know? Why does Professor Penn know about this? Well, let me give you a blast. I was extremely heavy when I was young. My parents raised me to be a scholar. They fought me and did not want me to participate in physical activities. And I had all kinds of emotional issues that came from me trying to walk my own road but being yanked in a direction I didn't want to go. And uh, I, was, I was really heavy. I was so heavy, in fact, that I, I still to this day don't like shopping for clothes because of my, I remember my mother taking me when I was in sixth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. I was about... 180 pounds in sixth grade with a 38-inch waist. And, uh, you know, we ate poorly. Our, our family had come off the what was called the shtetl, uh, the, the farm life in the Ukraine. And people were poor. You know, they worked hard. They were farmers. 
and they came here to the United States and they found a better life and plenty and prosperity, but they still ate like they were on the farm, and people got heavy and then they got heart disease because they were very sedentary. In fact, my one grandmother used to put sticks of butter, butter in my mouth because they believed that to be fat, overweight, and they said it was fat, please excuse me, and they said, please be fat. It'll show that you have wealth. So in my birth family, I'm talking back in the 50s, the people were so poor when they came here and so gaunt that when they found ready access to food and they didn't have to work all day as farmers, they actually wanted to make me heavy to show the world that we weren't poor. I mean, you know, this stuff is complex, right? Complex. And I was concerned about my own well-being, and I've suffered, and we're going to talk about this for the next few minutes. You know, I've suffered a lot of health problems because of this. I became unbalanced when I was young. I was overbalanced to reading notes and not playing by ear. You see, I'm trying to draw a metaphor here that I was too in my head and not enough in my feelings in my body. I was unbalanced. I was unbalanced. And well-being is based on balance, a concept that is not really well shared with we the people. You know, we talk about having a balanced diet. What the heck does that mean? Remember one time I was sitting with a uh, <laughs> an assassin, and he was having a Polish sausage and some watermelon. He looked at me and said, that's balance. I said, wow, because he knew I, at that time I was a vegetarian. Because much like that, that, that woman, that sufferer, I was trying to deal with my weight issues. And he was giving me a, a hard time. Well, I'm going to just share with everyone my own experience and I'm still working on this today. I'm still working on it. I am not liberated from this struggle. Uh, movement, intellectual movement, emotional movement, and physical movement is the cornerstone of well-being. It really doesn't matter your weight. Let me just say this right now. Now, of course, you can become too heavy or too thin. Everything's about balance. In all things moderation, including moderation. You see, this is not a simple deal. This is the art of life. This is the artistry of living my life. And I'm working on it every day, and I'm going to ask all the American citizens to work on it. And why? It's just too convenient to take a pill to lose weight. And I'm going to say, even if I was 100 pounds overweight as seriously uh, threatening to my well-being as that is, the dependency that's created by believing that we can take a pill for a headache or take a pill to lose weight. I mean, there are, there are diseases of which there are pills that we can take, for example, you know, infections, that it is very prudent to take that medicine. And I know there are some people who are watching me that are going to say, Professor Penn, I just can't lose weight. I'm going to take this pill. And if that's your choice, I respect you. I'm not judging anyone. I'm saying that it is 
very convenient to take a pill when our daily discipline, our daily habits that create our character and create our destiny can prevail. And what we're being taught is, and you know, the, the woman said it, she's a sufferer, she's a victim, she couldn't get jobs, she wasn't picked for the teams. In other words, there's an emotional component, there's a discrimination component, which there is, and no matter what she did, no matter what diet she was on, no matter how hard she exercised, that weight just wouldn't come off, and she's a sufferer. And I think this woman deserves every bit of protection for her American citizenship. I believe that our love needs to be for every sufferer because we all suffer. There is a bias towards thinness, which is built in genetically. I think it is. Anyhow, that's my opinion. But let us understand, let me share with you my, my belief, that movement of these intellectual movement is when we don't move intellectually, we become, we become the victims of propaganda. When we don't move emotionally, we're not able to deal with people in the present moment. And when we don't move physically, our body suffers. We need movement. We're about movement. Let's think back before the last 150 years when we had this giant migration to the cities. Let's think back about how people lived, where our genetics is, is still at, where we're, we're living in small groups, in harmony with nature, self-governing, generating our own food, either through uh, subsistence agriculture or through hunting, and through uh, cooperation with small groups of humans that we were in family structures with. And in 150 or 200 years or 300 years, we've aggregated in the cities. We live sedentary lives. We have convenience thrust upon us. And I'm just going to say as someone who was 180 pounds in sixth grade, I want you to think about what it is to have a 38-inch waist in sixth grade when everybody else has 26 or 28-inch waists and they weigh 110 pounds. Okay? I've suffered this. I have suffered it, and I still continue to work with it every day. And what I found is it's a lot of fun to play with my well-being. It's a constant experiment. Now, I don't want anybody to do anything that's against their doctors. I want people to be involved with their physicians. I have to say this after all. I don't want people to follow me, and I'm going to develop a liability. Please don't do that. I'm sharing opinions. You have your professionals, please continue your professional relationships. I walk. I walked six miles yesterday. I walked six miles Saturday. I'm recording this on a Monday morning. This is going to premiere Tuesday night. But I walked 12 miles over the weekend. I did another hour of yoga and movement. I did a lot of breathing exercises. I stretched. You know, we don't delve into this as far as we can go. Maybe our Western exercises, that ad said, you know, she's rode across half the Atlantic Ocean. She's worked out all. Maybe our working out is unbalanced. Maybe our working out could be a little bit more complete and involved intellectual and emotional and physical movement, all of it. 
My working out does. My working out leads me right to my prayer. I work out, and then I pray. It's the same thing for me. So let us think together as a community that perhaps what we're taught about working out is incomplete. You know, half the story's never been told. Maybe what we're taught about prayer is incomplete. Maybe we're only given half of the equation, keeping us subjects in the slavery, drugs, and piracy business model. Oh, they don't want us to figure this out, because if they do, we will not be ruled. We'll be self-governing. So this is an education issue. At its base, it's education of mother and father to child, and then from the school system to the children. We must retool everything, but not the Great Reset the way Klaus Schwab and the WEF is portraying it. That Great Reset will be, we're all slaves. Okay, that's their program. Our program is, is to recognize we do have a climate issue. We do have issues of social injustice to deal with. We do have Republican issues, and I don't mean Republican like the party. I mean governance issues to deal with. We do. But our solution as American citizens is not the diminution of our citizenship. No, quite the contrary. We want our citizenship, the value of our citizenship, and the value of our self-governance to increase. And what could be more important? Because... It was just announced this past week that cancer rates are increasing in younger people. Uh, could you please play this clip uh, with Dr. Azor and this announcement about cancer rate increases? A new study showing some types of cancer are on the rise in younger Americans. The analysis of 17 National Cancer Institute registries from 2010 to 2019 found that early onset cancers in U.S. patients between the ages of 30 and 39 is up 0.7 percent. The study also finding a big increase in cancer among women and a decline for men and noting that patients who identified as Asian, Hispanic, American Indian or Alaskan Native saw the greatest increases in risk. NBC News medical contributor Dr. Natalie Azar joins us now with more. Dr. Azar, from just the headlines, this is a really alarming study. What is your breakdown of it? Is it a little less scary as it seems on paper? Well, I think the trend is incredibly important to, to think about and to watch. What I think the viewers need to understand is that the absolute number of cancers that are happening in this country are still happening to older individuals. But again, it's the trend, it's the, it's the faster rise, especially in these colorectal cancers and bile duct cancers and breast cancers in younger women, that that is what we are really concerned. That's what's kind of sounding the alarm and sort of making us all in the healthcare community going, what's going on here? What about our screening tests? How are we, how are we gonna pick these, these cancers up? What do you think is driving this increase? You know, it, in medicine, it's always nice to have one, um, you know, fulfilling explanation for something and something that's easily fixed. This is not the case here. Experts cite a couple of different things, Ellison, namely obesity, also behavioral things like alcohol, certainly smoking, but then there are other exposures to carcinogens. There's the microbiome, the gut, and the interplay with the environment. The short answer is 
a lot of different things, not one thing, but it's definitely been a call to action for the research community to try to better understand why these patterns are happening. Yeah, for people who are looking at this as a patient, as yes. a non-medical person, should we look at this and say, okay, those screenings we thought we didn't need until later in life, past 40, mm -hmm. as a woman, should we be getting them earlier? So unfortunately, patients are not empowered to make that decision. Insurance will not cover it. You know, these the, the governing bodies who sort of dictate and tell us what to order and do, they are evidence-based, right? They want to say it's cost-effective to screen a 35-year-old woman for thyroid cancer. Right now, that's not the case, but thyroid cancers are increasing. So I think this research from JAMA is going to add to the body of evidence that these cancers are, in fact, really happening at a higher rate than we would like to see, and that I hope within a next sort of generation that we do see some action taken that certain cancers are screened for differently than they are now. Do you expect that it will move in that direction? I do. Okay. I do. That's you know, good. Thank you, Tanner. Like Thank you. Well, the cancer rates are increasing in younger people, mostly in women aged 30 to 39. And you heard the doctor say that it was linked to obesity and smoking. Uh, you know, these are lifestyle choices, really essentially. Uh, the ability to get up off the floor is the greatest predictor of longevity, believe it or not. Number two, grip strength. So, you know, these are very complex issues that can be made very simple. I like to make complex things simple. If we move intellectually, emotionally, and physically, because those are artificial distinctions, let's just say if we move will be more robust, more resilient, and more able to take on any issue that we have to confront. I've been sick. I've been very, very sick. Remember I said I had a, you know, 38-inch waist in sixth grade, 180 pounds when everybody else weighed 100 pounds. Boy, was that painful. I still carry that emotional pain with me. It doesn't go away. So, you know, for those of you who are watching me that are struggling with an obesity issue, Boy, I'm not judging against you. I almost want to cry. I suffered. I was embarrassed. I stayed home. I mean, I, I still can't go shopping for clothes. I'm okay for suits, but my casual clothes, it's black T-shirts and jeans. People laugh at me. I don't like to shop. It, it, it brings back, I get re-triggered, that memory. I don't want to see myself in a mirror. I have a kind of a dysphoria. Or a di whatever they whatever the right word is, I can't see myself clearly because I didn't like what I saw. I'm sure you understand what I'm saying if you have that same issue. But we have to move. The critical thing for human well-being is movement, and it can just start with walking. So walking, when you walk, first you want to have sunscreen on. You want to protect because we do have environmental issues. A lot of the ozone has been depleted. We're getting a lot of solar radiation. We don't need that. It makes our skin vulnerable. So put on your sunscreen, put on a hat, and go walk. And if you can only walk for 10 minutes, that's great. But when you walk, when you walk, walk with style. You want to know what style is? Go watch some military people drilling in the sun. They are walking with style. Walk from your center. Feel your big toe and your feet. Stride easily. Coordinate your movements so your whole body is working together. 
And when you walk like that, you're getting the basic movement that you need. And for food, it's an experiment. It's an experiment. I mean, this is something I'm still working with, and we're going to talk about it more and more. But what I'm trying to say is the convenience of a pill is one road, and the difficult path of self-governance is the other. We have to choose, and we have to find the balance between convenience and self-governance. If we don't choose that balance for ourselves, the choice will be made for us, and we are going to wake up very soon in a digital prison. So I'm asking everyone to think about these issues, and what do you do when you're thinking about it? Join politics. Come to caucuses. Let your will be in the game. There are people that are going to come that are interested in your well-being, in my well-being. Let's form a community of people that are interested in community well-being, and we're going to have a group that we can share with and grow with. Maybe you'll make, make friends and go on a walk with people together. These are critical issues, critical issues. But I also want to say the same week that the government announced, or JAMA, which is the government, because to be a doctor in the Journal of Medicine, and you know this is their association. Hey, you know, to be a doctor, you need a license, which means you're part of the system. Interesting, isn't it? Used to be able to be a doctor just by being a philosopher. They ended that. That would be called practicing medicine without a license. Try that, and you're going to jail for sure. But the same week that they announced that there was an increase in cancers, U.S. scientists announced that they have developed a new cancer-stopping pill that could annihilate solid tumors. A miracle. Well, who knows? It's hard to think of the scientific solution that doesn't have a downside. But just as these cancers are starting to rise up and explode in young people, there's a pill that you can take that's going to save your life. What a, what, what a, a strange... Uh, Timing. What strange timing that is. Um, August 1st in the Cell Chemical Biology Journal, the article was titled Small, Small Molecule Targeting of Transcription Replication Conflict for Selective Chemotherapy. Uh, the data suggests that this uh, is just a crackerjack way of dealing with solid tumors. We'll see. The jury's out. But uh, I was very emotionally challenged by this because on the one hand, on the one hand, the increasing rates of cancer diagnosis is very painful for me because I've been there. I've had them look at me and say, hey, here's your chances. And then you go to another doctor and they go, oh, here's your chances. They got a different story. Then you go to a third one, oh, they got another story. So you're sitting there with, uh, you know, <laughs> a range of options. You're going to have to choose what you like. I've been there. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And you know, I've recovered. I don't have anxiety anymore about these issues. I had years of runaway anxiety disorder, panic attacks. It healed. How did it heal? Well, that's what I want to share because these things can be healed. We can be well. We are given by our creator, the means to be well. And it doesn't matter 
where we are on the spectrum of well and not well, take that next step towards well-being. Well-being is going to be mine when I take my last breath. Well-being and disease are not necessarily the same thing. There are many people who are dying right now who are well. They are well. And then there's people that are dying that are very unwell. Another concept we're going to delve into, I'm just laying it out there for you to think about. I'm thinking about it. But I really wanted to scream about these these rates because these cancer rates are increasing. They're going, well, we don't know why it happens. Yes, we do know why it happens. It's just like the person that needs notes to play the music or someone that can play by ear. A person that has perfect pitch and perfect musical memory doesn't need notes. This doctor, God bless her, she needs notes. She wants research. I'm going to tell you, the answer to all of our disease problems is movement, is well-being, is the focus on the well-being of the American people. Let's not be so concerned about global climate change. Let's talk about the carcinogens in your local water supply, the radiation you're bathed in in your house when you're brushing your teeth, the crap in your food, the hormones and the antibiotics that get aggregated up into your allegedly safe food that we're consuming every day. Oh, there's cancers. What a surprise. What a surprise. Geez, we don't know why it happens. It's complex. It's very complex. Could I please have a research grant for $5 million? I'd like to study it. Get it? On the payroll of the globalist. These people are on the payroll of the globalists because it's the system. It's not a conspiracy. Steve Bannon, I want to give an attribution on this because many of you know War Room and listen to Bannon, and I think this is one of the most brilliant things he said. It's not a conspiracy. It's the way the system works. It's just the way our system works. And what's the system? He doesn't say this. Maybe he'll attribute this to Professor Penn. Slavery, drugs, and piracy. That's the system. That's the system. Let's play this piece on Jeff Duncan, the former uh, vice governor, the, uh, the uh, number two guy in the state of Georgia. Joining us now, you saw him in Nick's piece. He's someone who testified before that grand jury, just hours before the indictment was returned. CNN contributor and former Republican lieutenant governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan. Uh, Jeff, I appreciate your time this morning. First off, the 98-page indictment, uh, it's now out. You've seen it. Was there anything in there that either surprised you or looked off base from your personal experience throughout this process and this investigation? Yeah, my early assessment is that there's really no names on there that surprise me and there's no scenarios that surprise me, right? And that might come in the contrast to Republicans all over the country, but this this was what we were talking against during the, the immediate Stop, days please. and months after the 20... 20- First of all, it's Lieutenant Governor, excuse me, Lieutenant, military worded. It evaded me. You know, he's the vice governor. You know, we don't have to have that military model everywhere. And what he's saying is, is he's in juxtaposition as a Republican to the vast majority of Republicans that view the indictments of President Trump suspiciously. Let's get away from Republican and Democrat. Lieutenant, ex-Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is a globalist. Let's listen to him in that context. Please continue. 
after the 2020 election cycle. This just, the math just didn't add up, right? You, you couldn't take a tweet and turn it into a factual scenario. And, and so, no, nothing really surprised me that jumped off the page. I want our viewers to hear something you said last night. I believe this is when you walked out of the courthouse about what you hope America takes from this. Here you were. My hope is that Americans believe us. My hope is that Republicans believe us, uh, that this election was fair and legal. And uh, I certainly think this is a pivotal point for us. Uh, you know, as a Republican that cares about the future of this country, this is our moment to, to, to hit the reset button. Your hope is not echoed by a vast majority of Republicans who still say in polling that they believe that uh, Biden didn't legitimately win the election. And, and it's not something shared by most of the people running against Trump. But you think this one changes things? Yeah, this is certainly carries an even bigger weight than the other ones. I mean, as if a federal indictment doesn't carry weight or other states' indictments, but but certainly this added to it. But you know what, Poppy? I, I'm going to be critical of, of my party. I'm going to be critical of those that are running for president in my party. I'm going to be critical of governors and senators. They know the right thing to do here. The right thing to do is to call Donald Trump out for lying, misleading us, and taking our Republican Party straight to the ditch. That's what's happened here. And until we all want to stand up and speak as loudly and clearly as we possibly can, that the Republican Party needs to use this as a pivot point to hit the reset button, to go to a GOP 2.0 that really gets us back to talking about the policies. If 2024 is about the issues, if it's just strictly about the issues and not about Donald Trump, we will beat the brakes off Joe Biden. He's got no, no positive record on the border, national security, public safety. Stop, These are please. issues that we can... Okay, so what do we have here? We have a globalist asking for a reset of the Republican Party. Trump is the first nationalist we've had, or a president that has some nationalist thinking in my lifetime. The first one in my lifetime. And, of course, this guy is an anathema Trump to the globalist because <laughs> look at all the the conflict and controversy that he spawned. And what uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan is saying is that, you know, if you take a look at the issues, national security, I mean, if that's a fugazi, everybody, the Uni Party, the globalists agree about it. He's dragging us back into what everybody who's a globalist agrees on. So if you're a globalist in the Democrat Party or a globalist in the Republican Party, you agree about national security. You agree about public safety. You agree about these issues. He doesn't care who wins. That's the con. Please continue. Kim to the floor with. But if we just make it about Donald Trump, we're going to continue to be embarrassed. And our campaign speeches in the Republican Party are going to be from courthouse steps every mm. single day. Um, we can do better. We should do better. And this needs to be the wake-up call. And, and I, I've certainly been, been vocal about this. We need to have everybody running for president stand up together. Not because their consultants tell them it makes sense today, not because it, it doesn't feel like a short-term sugar high, but get up there and tell Donald Trump to get out of this race for the good of the party and for the good of the country. Jeff, I think to that point, and, and credit for consistency, you've said that after, I think this is now at least the third indictment that you've said very similar things about it's time to turn the page. It's time to get away from this. It's time to not... Uh, always be defending or rallying around somebody who's been consistently indicted, and yet the former president's poll numbers continually seem to go up in moments like this. He's able to frame, particularly in a primary electorate, these as political attacks uh, by Democrats. To that point, 
Uh, did you get any sense that Fonnie Willis and your interactions with her during this process or her team was politically motivated? I think the pre former president called her a rabid partisan or that the grand jury itself was out to intentionally get the pres former president. Look, that's Donald Trump's game. Every time he gets put in a corner, he 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 fights like like a, a kid, right? He just he calls names. There's no there's no merits behind it. I, I certainly didn't encounter any of that. It was a very professional process, a very well-informed district attorney's office, a very well-informed jury uh, that asked very in, uh, intellectual questions throughout the process. Oh, that's good. Uh, but look, that's good. So, uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan is a paid political consultant of CNN. They don't mention that. I had to look it up. You know, he's got an interesting history. He was a professional baseball player. He, he played Major League Baseball. And uh, that means, you know, he looks like an athlete, doesn't he? You know, square jot, he looked like Captain America. Good-looking guy, played professional baseball, got hurt after six years, came out, right away got a job working for a major health care provider as the CEO. How does that happen? You know, you go from playing professional baseball to being the CEO of a large healthcare provider. I, I don't know how that happens. Somebody put him in the role. And then not long thereafter, about six or seven or eight years after he got that job, he immediately got into the Georgia political scene, got elected to the Georgia State House, and then not, not long after that, he was lieutenant governor. Yeah, how does that happen? Well, let me tell you, Georgia used to be part of Dixie, right? It was one of the states that broke away from the union. Uh, Georgia is a center of globalism. Uh, some of the international businesses that are uh, recently located or expanded to Georgia include Adidas, Arubis, Hapag Lloyd, Hyundai, Kia, Kubota, Mercedes-Benz, Nestle, Porsche, Q-Cells. You know, there's a lot of major companies here. Cox Communications, SunTrust Banks, Delta, Aflac. CNN is right there, right in Atlanta. I've stayed at the hotel that's attached to CNN. Very impressive. Scary, actually. Georgia Pacific. UPS is, is domiciled there in Georgia. You know, Siemens. Do you know that the largest foreign employer in the state of Georgia? What a shock. It's the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has the largest footprint of volume of business in the state of Georgia, in Germany, in Canada, in Japan, in the Netherlands, in Switzerland, in France, in Italy, in Australia, in South Africa. There's a lot of global companies domiciled in Atlanta, Georgia. Top 10 countries by employment in Georgia, number one is Japan, the auto industry. There's 33,000 people working for Japanese companies in Georgia. Number two, Germany. 25,000 people work for German companies. Number three, the United Kingdom. 22,000 people in Georgia work for companies that are owned in the United Kingdom. That'd be, uh, you know, the birthplace of slavery, drugs, and piracy, the crown, and so on and so forth. So this is the way things work, right? I'm not here to say that Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is a good or a bad guy. I don't know him personally. I'm not making a statement about him good or bad. I don't like the fact that he's saying that politics can't take place on the step of a court. 
that's the perfect place for politics to per, be pursued on the steps of the court because we are in a country that's based on rule of law. When there's no rule of law, if you, the American citizen, if I, the American citizen, believe there's no law anymore, hey, we've kind of gone off into a strange place, right? And there's a lot of people that are already in that strange place. So let us adjudicate these issues. Let's shine the light. Let's shine light on this whole process. Let's not be too quick to judgment. Let's get all the information, all the facts. Let's see how this thing plays out. But it's how the system works. He was a professional athlete. He suddenly was working for a health care provider. Whoa, CEO. How do you go from being a professional baseball player to CEO of a health care company? That's a stretch, isn't it? Maybe he was a CEO in name only. And then he's all of a sudden elected. Hey, somebody picked this guy out. Now he's working for CNN as a paid political consultant. And he's got a hatchet out for President Trump, and he's doing a good job for the 50 people that watch CNN every day. Because let's talk about what the mainstream media has become. You know, the same companies that own CNN and all the other mainstream media outlets, what they call legacy outlets, the same companies that own these media outlets, and they've just become giant billboards for what? For the business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. Just go watch who's advertising on CBS and NBC and ABC and MSNBC and CNN and Fox News. Go look at who the advertisers are. Look at where they're getting their money. And you'll understand how this game is played. And then go look up their ownership. All you got to do is put in on your Google search, who owns Pfizer? Who owns Fox? Who owns CNN? Look it up for yourself. Because if I tell you, hey, it's not the same as you got to find it for yourself. You got to see it for yourself. And it's pervasive. It's just pervasive. I had an opportunity this past week. I was invited to go see a lecture given by a very famous globalist. Walter Isaacson is this man's name. In fact, Walter Isaacson, for many years, was the chief executive of this same CNN that has Jeff Duncan on the payroll. Well, let's take a look at, Jeff, at Mr. Walter Isaacson and see what he's all about. Could you just pop this Walter Isaacson piece up here with Andrea Mitchell on NBC? And joining me now, Walter Isaacson, who is part of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine trial. He is the author of The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race, to be published in March, the next great big book from Walter Isaacson after everything else you've done. Walter, first, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Any side effects? I know you don't know whether you got the placebo or the vaccine. Oh, no, no side effects at all. And clearly, they've had 44,000 people go through this trial, half of them getting the real vaccine, and there's been no side effects. There's no danger in these uh, uh, vaccines, especially the one that Pfizer and Moderna are doing, which don't even use parts of the real virus as a vaccine, the way our measles and mumps and polio do. It's simply a piece of RNA that tells your own cells to create a spike protein. So if you get hit by uh, coronavirus, it knows how to uh, use antibodies against it. 
Well, this is clearly an outgrowth of what you were studying in, in your research for the book as well. So tell me why you decided to participate. And I think it is related to what you were working on and Doudna's research. And she just was awarded the Nobel Prize for it. Right. The uh, CRISPR and the genetic editing revolution that we're just right. starting right now is based on RNA, which became my favorite molecule. Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier, the winners of the Nobel Prize, were able to use RNA as a guide to take a scissors and cut up our genes so we could edit our genes. RNA, of course, is probably that molecule that started life on this planet. So I was always interested in it. And when I read that vaccines were being developed that didn't use uh, the old viruses to try to uh, stimulate your immune system, but used RNA, I was down in New Orleans where I live, and I just uh, went online and signed up for the trial at Oxnard Hospital down there. Partly just the way you like to be involved in things. I mean, there's no bravery here. I mean, this thing is totally safe. But just like you do jury duty or maybe vote or whatever it may be, the notion of participating in a clinical trial is something we all can do. And it also helps get your mind around science. You get a better feeling for, oh, here's how they're studying this. And, um, you know, every day I'd fill out a little diary on my iPhone and send it in. And you'd say, okay, I get how this works. This is how science works. We ought to have faith in it. Stop. We ought to have faith in science. No, we need to have faith in God. Science is not about faith. It's a strange comment coming from a guy with a PhD. Please continue. How has participating informed your writing of the book uh, or maybe the book was nearly done when you started this, but it strikes me, I, I, I was talking to you when you were doing the Einstein book and Da Vinci. I mean, you get so involved in these wonderful scientific details and you explain it so clearly to people. Maybe you could help explain messenger RNA to us. Well, messenger RNA is just the main thing that RNA does in our body. Everybody loves DNA. It's sort of the famous brother uh, in the pair. But RNA is a sibling that actually does the work. It takes the coding uh, from the DNA, which stays hunkered down in the nucleus of our cell, and it goes to that region of our cell where proteins are built. So what a messenger RNA is, is just the RNA that takes that message from the DNA in your nucleus and says, build this protein. And the cool thing about it in a vaccine like Pfizer, Moderna, and others that are using genetic vaccines, and that's what this revolution this year is happening. We're going to this new type of genetic vaccine. What that does is it can be reprogrammed every time a new virus comes along. Because even after we defeat uh, this coronavirus, which I think we'll be doing this spring with the vaccines that will come online, there are going to be more viruses that Stop, will hit please. us. First of all, let me just say that we have a new viral outbreak. I'm going to go on record here as saying I'm afraid they're going to ask for more lockdowns because we're going into an election year and because there's a new virus and it's supposed to be very serious. Oh, and there's a new set of vaccines that are rolling out. So what Walter Isaacson is selling here, and he's a salesman, that's who he is. He's a salesman for science and for the new world order and for all the things that come out of that business model. What he's saying is COVID's going to be defeated, which it wasn't, and that there's going to be more viruses that are coming. Really? 
Please continue. Let's finish off. More coronaviruses and other types of viruses. The cool thing about an RNA-type vaccine is that even a college biology student in a lab could recode it and say, okay, now, now attack this or uh, create an immune system for this new virus. All you have to do is type in the new genetic code of what you're trying to uh, inoculate against. And uh, so to me, it's ushering in an era, you know, we all talk about our kids wanting to learn digital coding. Well, they're going to be joined by people who learn the code of life. This is so fascinating. Uh, just briefly, what happens if you did get the placebo? Do you have access to the vaccine itself? Yeah, I think that... Uh, I'd talk okay, to that's good enough. Collins. Goodbye, Walter. I went to see this guy. Now, let's just give you a little history on him. Uh, he grew up in poor circumstances. He's very smart. Uh, he graduated from Harvard. He became a Rhodes Scholar. For those of you who like to do your own research, go look up Cecil Rhodes. Go see who Cecil Rhodes was in our history. Even with the whitewashing of Cecil Rhodes, it's hard to miss who this guy was. And who was the Rhodes Scholar? Where do you go? Oh, he went to Oxford. He got his PhD at Pembroke College in England. So this guy is thoroughly a globalist. His education in Harvard and then at Oxford makes him a globalist. That's the worldview that he was trained in. And then he came back, and in addition to working for CNN, for many years, he was the director of the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is one of the primary globalist think tanks. It's funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation. We've talked about these wonderful foundations. These were the foundations that funded the Nazis. Oh, I'm sure it's so different now. That was in their past. It's all changed today, isn't it? Must be, right? So he worked on the payroll of the Rockefellers and the Fords and the Carnegies. Oh, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That who That is who founds, who funds the Aspen Institute. And just to let you know, they got a great cover story on that, too. They have the Aspen Music Festival, something that I aspired to as a young man. It's where young people go to perform classical music in the summertime with great artists teaching them. And that's part of the funding of the Aspen Institute. So guess what? Remember that last podcast where we played a Russian communist violinist, David Oistrock, playing the music of a German composer, Beethoven, in the Royal Albert Music Hall of the Crown, classical music being used to bring people together from very different, different political perspectives? Well, guess who's grabbed onto that now? That would be the Aspen Institute using classical music as a cover story for their globalist enterprise. And one of their little enterprises in the last, and I did not know this when I was doing this research over the weekend, in the last podcast we talked about bunker fuel and how it had been identified as a huge pollutant, and a carbon, you know, a, a greenhouse gas emitter, and that that was such a big deal with all the global, you know, shipping industry, that the ships... Guess who's pushing the decarbonization of our global shipping fleet? Oh, that'd be the Aspen Institute. How interesting is it? All you got to do is dig around. Start turning over some rocks yourself. You don't even have to do library research. Just go to Wikipedia. They're not hiding. So this is this man's history. Worked for, uh, went to Harvard, PhD, Oxford, 
director of the Aspen Institute, director of CNN. I mean, this guy, but he's such a great salesman. I went to his lecture, and he's written all these books because he's figured out how to turn this into a money-making machine for himself. And he's written all these biographies of Da Vinci and, and uh, uh, Musk and Jobs and this woman that developed CRISPR. I mean, he's got all these biographies that he's written. Fantastic. Benjamin Franklin, he kind of credentializes himself by talking about a founding father, Benjamin Franklin. That makes all of his work seem so Americana. And I went to his lecture, and I went with a good friend of mine, and I want to thank Rob for inviting me. Fantastic. There was a 1,000 people there. I sat quietly, didn't cause any trouble, didn't raise my hand, didn't ask any questions. But I, I looked at what he was fencing. Because what he was talking about was creativity, something I know something about. And uh, his theory of the case was that creativity, the cornerstone of creativity in his worldview is curiosity. Because what he was selling was the scientific method. And all of the new fourth, uh, the, the fourth industrial revolution scientific benefits that's going to come from gene editing and biotechnologies and robotics and artificial intelligence. He's selling that. Now, the people in that room, I didn't really belong there, was very wealthy people, super wealthy, the wealthiest people in Minnesota. I was there as a guest, and it was really funny. The people at my table, right away they realized I wasn't wealthy. They all turned their back on me. But that's another story for another day. Anyhow, I didn't say anything. For those of you that know me that think I was aggressive, I mean, these people could just smell I wasn't a multi-multi-millionaire. So they didn't really want to take any time for me because what's the benefit, right? Anyhow, he was there selling science. That's what he was doing. He was selling science because he wants all of America to buy in on this new biological revolution. Everyone needs to buy in on all of the biotechnologies, including those technologies which are going to be involved with the social credit score and one world digital currency and all the things that are part of the scientific method, the outgrowth thereof. He's a great salesman, and he's figured out how to make a bunch of money doing it, writing these books. And the books are all united in his mind by the creativity of the great people, scientific minds that he has studied and then written about. And he's decided that the cornerstone of creativity is curiosity. And I reject that. I think the cornerstone of creativity is openness to the supernatural, to the one true God. I know where my creativity comes from. My creativity does not come from curiosity. My creativity comes from submission and by renouncing sin to whatever extent I can. And I've got a long way to go, and I'm working on it every day, giving up my addiction to sin, opening myself to that supernatural realm, being one with God, praying, practicing, playing music, doing these podcasts, creating my business, my family relationships. I'm only concerned about what is my next step. I'm not thinking downrange about how I'm going to control all these useless eaters as they do in the scientific world. That's not who I am. 
Now, maybe curiosity is part of the scientific method, and the scientific, scientific science has much to offer we the people. But curiosity, that's unlimited. Ambition, that's unlimited, has gotten us exactly into the jam we find ourselves today because science is being used to create a digital prison and the convenience that science has generated is the hook to get us to walk into that prison where we are going to become slaves. No, I prefer the creativity that comes from faith, the thrill that comes from saying, my eyes don't believe what my hands have created. That's the kind of creativity that we want to focus on here together. That's the kind of creativity that's sustainable. That's the kind of creativity that doesn't have a downside. It's all upside. It makes us well. It helps us to move from narcissism to altruism. It helps us understand well-being and the importance of spreading well-being, which is the point of a divinely inspired creativity. And on that note, I want to thank you for joining me again. It was a mellow Tuesday night podcast. I hope I've uh, brought up some issues that you can think about. And uh, just in my ongoing love of uh, classical music, we're going to go out with uh, a little bit more of uh, a different kind of classical music. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon again. And, of course, I wish you well. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you so much. Thank you. Some time ago, Ray came to me with a tune that was written by a young man in Washington, D.C., by the name of Clement Wells. We started playing the tune. We recorded it. It's on an album called We Get Requests. And uh, it sounds much like a little piano piece by Bach. It is not. It's called You Look Good to Me. Thank you.